Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer, back together again. Today is a it's a little bit of a, of a, a power-packed, uh, an overloaded podcast because we're talking Dodgers, we're talking Dodgers prospects, but we have to start, if you're going to talk Dodgers and we're talking Dodgers this week, we're going to talk about the V-trade that happened you know, last night that's happening today, uh, I guess still you know, to be official. Um, and we want to look at that from all angles. We're not just going to talk about the Dodgers aspect of that, but we're going to talk about the Dodgers aspect. We're going to talk about the Twins aspect, the Red Sox aspect, and I guess we even need to talk a little bit about the uh, Angels aspect of this because there were a pair of deals last night. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to dive into Dodgers prospect talk. So if you want just Dodgers prospect talk, it is coming, but we want to talk about the trade that happened, the trade that was reported last night, the massive one where Mookie Betts, uh, the – one of the best players in baseball right now, I think that's pretty uh, safe, pretty easy to say, was tr- is being traded to the Dodgers. In return, the Dodgers are receiving Bustard Gratterall from the Twins. They're also receiving Alex Verdugo from the Dodgers. The Dodgers are also receiving uh, David Price and at least part of his contract, the Red Sox are playing, paying part of that. We'll get into the Angels trade later, but, but Kyle, we... It's funny. We'll we'll give a little peek behind the curtain. We had a full Mookie Betts speculation podcast that we recorded last night that became obsolete before it was going to go live today. So we're doing this again. But I guess I'll ask you now that the trade is is happening. What is your initial thoughts on uh, on Mookie Betts, the Dodgers? The Dodgers pulled off a coup. I mean, they acquired one of the best players in baseball for Kenta Maeda, who was essentially a swingman for them and Alex Verdugo, who is a very nice young player, but you map out the Dodgers short-term, long-term. He was not a critical piece that was going to determine whether or not they were going to win world series this year, the year after or the year after that, he was a complimentary player for them to acquire one of the best players in baseball. And Oh, by the way, you know, David Price has a lot of focus on his contract. He took a step back last year as he dealt with injury. He still struck out almost 11 per nine from the left side. He's a year removed from a really good year and a great postseason. He still has something left in the tank. The Dodgers acquired one of the best players in baseball and a veteran left-hander who should help them in their rotation this year without giving up any of their top prospects, without giving up any of their best young big leaguers, and altogether without changing the outlook for this team for the future in any harmful way while enhancing the outlook in the present. This was a masterstroke. Bravo to Andrew Friedman. Bravo to everyone involved in this deal. The Dodgers pulled a heist. I'm going to, as you might expect, agree with you. It's hard to argue this, you know, and dislike this, you know, for what this means for the Dodgers. But the, the thing that I just kind of come away thinking about with this is if you are talking about, and again, we're, 
we cover baseball, we're journalists, we, we, we understand that we have a little bit of a different perspective but than, than the average fan, you know, when these things happen. But I do try to kind of think through what this means for, for fans. And yeah, I know they haven't won a World Series and I know that that's rough. And I will say also, I know that there are a lot of people in the LA area who are Dodgers fans who have real trouble getting the, uh, getting to watch the games because there's been a extremely long running, it's somewhat improved, but a long running dispute as far as carriage uh, of the uh, Dodgers games on local, uh, on local TV. That said, I cannot think of an ownership group. I cannot think of a front office that should carry a higher approval rating to me around baseball than the Dodgers. And the reason I say that is, is that this is a team that is consistently successful consistently produces new talent year after year after year and does so even though they do not draft at the top of the draft. And this is a team that year after year after year has made the moves to put themselves in position to win a World Series. Now, it doesn't mean they're guaranteed to win one this year, obviously. But this is a team that was as good as anyone in baseball last year. That doesn't always result in a World Series win. And they're doing what they can to be better this year. And to me, I can't get over the fact, you know, when we are talking about, I, we, I think that's probably the perfect segue. When we're talking about the fact that the Red Sox are trading away one of the best players in baseball, effectively for a luxury tax reset. That is the, the key overriding factor. They did do a reasonably good job of getting back talent considering the nature of that. But to do that, and I know I don't want to say it, but to do that just a couple of years after, if, if that was the intent, then don't approve the Nady Evaldi contract a couple of years ago. Don't approve the, uh, you know, the, there's many moves that we can make that we can say. If the idea was is no, there has to be a luxury tax reset for this club, then then the moves that they made the last couple of years don't make a whole lot of sense. And I know that they have gotten rid of the GM since then, but I think that goes to ownership as well. The ownership approved those moves. But I, I can't help but, but notice the distinction between the two sides where we have two of the largest revenue teams in baseball and yeah, I mean, the Dodgers are closer to a World Series right now than the Red Sox were, but I did view this Red Sox team, and maybe I'm wrong, but I viewed them as a team that was absolutely had a chance to contend in 2020 just with a few minor moves and better health for everyone. What are, what are your thoughts, Kyle? I mean, you said that the Red Sox had a chance to potentially contend this year and chose to likely punt on it. Now, where the criticisms of the Red Sox are the most fair here is by attaching price to this deal. They were going to limit their return. Teams did not want to pay price $32 million a year for the next three years. I know the Red Sox threw some cash in the deal. I know price has something left in the tank. As we talked about, there's still some swing and miss stuff in there, but 
by attaching price and essentially saying we're prioritizing getting under the luxury tax threshold, that to them was more important than getting the best possible return for Mookie Betts. If David Price isn't part of this deal, it's very, very possible they get more for Betts. We saw the Paul Goldschmidt trade last year, MVP level player who was one year away from hitting free agency. He brought back two young big league ready pieces, Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver, as well as a third decent prospect who's in the upper minors, as well as a draft pick. The Red Sox got less for Mookie Betts than the Diamondbacks did for Paul Goldschmidt, even though Betts is the better player, he's the younger player. And part of that was because they decided their priority was not getting the most talent back, but was getting under the luxury tax. And to do that, they had to move David Price and accept a lesser return. That to me is where the criticism is fair for the Red Sox. If they were really devoted to making this move, which they didn't have to be, but they were, the priority should have been get the most talent back we can. They chose money over talent, and as a result, they got, again, I think Verdugo is a very nice player who has the potential to become a very good everyday right fielder for the Red Sox. Brewster Gratterall immediately becomes the Red Sox' number one prospect. He's a flamethrower. He gives them a promising young pitcher, something they do not have. They did get back two good players. Let's not demean Verdugo and Gratterall here by any stretch, but by attaching price to this, they miss an opportunity to acquire more talent for one of the best players in the game. And to me, it's that prioritization of money over talent for a team with a budget like the Red Sox have. I think it's very frustrating if you're a Red Sox fan waking up this morning. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the, the other thing you look at this is, is that there are some unknowns we do not know with the Red Sox. The biggest one being we do not know we're still waiting for uh, the investigation that is going on into the Red Sox uh, potential sign stealing. They don't. They don't still know. don't have a manager, by the way, and we are uh, five days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. That is also true, um, but you, you, we do not know what that's going to mean. That could be nothing. It could mean all the way up to you know penalties that are as severe as the as the penalties that the Astros faced and. At that end of the spectrum, if that happens, this, then, then you have a Red Sox team that is going to see its ability to acquire young, you know, not, you know, young prospect talent uh, significantly diminished if that happened, which would make an attempted rebuild, you know, if this is a rebuild, and I, and I think it is in some ways now, uh, you know, it would make it much more, uh, much more difficult. I mean, the reality of it is, is, is that, and I do want to get into the other teams, but that the, the team, the Yankees obviously are a big winner in this, but to me, even more so than that, the Rays, the Rays had to, yes, they, they did lose another, uh, you know, front office official that went to become a GM of another club this week, which seems to happen to them a lot. And when we talk about the Dodgers and how well Andrew Friedman runs things, you know, former Ray, but this is a great, that was a great night for the Rays because that was, that was the Red Sox going from being a potentially very significant competitor to be the number two team likely in the AL East to taking a big step back to getting rid of their best player and, and a pitcher who still is, you know, one of the better, you know, one of the better starting pitching starting pitchers in the uh, Red Sox rotation at the minimum with some durability concerns and injury issues, but to take that away from the Dodgers, I mean, from the Red Sox, makes the Rays' path in 2020 also, to me, significantly easier. 
I also think you go outside the division, you look at the other potential AL wildcard contenders, um, whether that's the A's and the Angels and the AL West, given that the Astros are the defending champions, move into the Central, Indians as well, if you assume the Twins are going to repeat as Central champions. This has reverberations across the entire American League. Again, the Red Sox still have a talented team. You still have Xander Bogarts, you still have Rafael Devers. I don't know if you really want to bury them yet and say they have zero chance of making the postseason, but they did not enhance their chances last night with this trade. They took a legitimate step back and decreased their postseason chances for 2020, and the rest of the American League stands to benefit from that. Again, well, that's Angels, A's, Astros, Twins, Indians, potentially a young sleeper team like the White Sox, the Rays. Their odds all just increased by virtue of Boston choosing to decrease their odds. Yeah, and so, okay, now, the, funny for me, to me, the Twins aspect of this is, in some ways, the most interesting aspect of this trade. And the reason I say that is, is that for the Dodgers, you can't argue anything other than great move for the Dodgers unless you're worried about the uh, profit margin that the, uh, that the Dodgers have in, in 2020. Other than that, you know, yes, they're going to pay him a good bit of money, although he's worth more than that, you know, on the free market. But... But other than that, it's a win for the Dodgers. With the Red Sox, it's equally straightforward. It's hard to say this is anything other than a salary dump, and that's what it is. But for the Twins, this is a baseball trade. This is the Twins traded away one of their best pitching prospects, Bruce Dargraderall, number 60, I believe, on our top 100 uh, that just came out. And in return, they got right-hander Kenta Maeda, who has both started and relieved, generally has started – and then at the end of the season, move to the pen as the uh, Dodgers kind of get, get ready and, and go into the playoffs where he's been a useful reliever for them. I, I've got some very uh, – I've got a long list of thoughts on this, but I do want to start with you, Cal. What, what do you think? Uh, did this trade – is that giving up too much to trade away Gratterall to get Maeda, or, or do you like it for the Twins? I mean, I get what they did. Again, you're looking at a kid in Gratterall who is very, very talented. There's a lot of stuff there. But as has been discussed before, there's legitimate concerns, whether he's a reliever full-time, if he's able to really be that mid to front of the rotation starter. There's a lot of questions there. With Kenta Maeda, you know you're getting a good, solid starting pitcher who is durable, has postseason experience. And look, the Twins need that. We saw it last year, and it's been the same story, different names, really, this 21st century. They get to the playoffs, and they don't have the starting pitching to contend with, more often than not the Yankees, who they keep meeting in the American League division. Every time, it seems like. So with that, in Maeda, you are absolutely giving yourself a good, solid, potential Game 3, Game 4 starter that they didn't have before. You you had Jose Barrios, but you look at what the rest of this Twins rotation looked like this year. They were relying on some guys with some scary injury histories. Homer Bailey, Rich Hill, Michael Pineda. They were looking at some guys like Randy Dobnak and Devin Smeltzer who are kind of unproven late bloomers that maybe their blossoming is real. Maybe it was just a fluke and they're going to take a step back. There was a lot of questions in this rotation. Uh, They feel like they have a window to contend right now with the Indians potentially taking a step back. The White Sox maybe not quite ready for prime time, although they might have a chance to surprise this year. The Twins are the defending champions. They have a chance to return to the postseason this year and just get past the first round for the first time since 2002. That would be hugely valuable to the franchise. And this trade, 
improve their odds of doing that. I think it's very possible that we look back 10 years from now and man, Brewster Gradwell's had a better career than Kenta Maeda. What were the twins thinking? But I think when you look at where they are now, what they need right now, I think the move makes sense. I'm fine with it. I understand why they did it. And now just kind of have to see how it all works out. I, the, I generally agree with what you said there. The, the other pieces, the other little details that I would add is Kenta Maeda's contract that he is, you know, that he has four years left on it. Three point, I believe it's one, two, five million per year for each of those four years. There are some incentives that he could also reach. That is, I think that is a key aspect of this because that is such a below market rate for what it would cost to acquire a Kenta Maeda type on the free agent market. So not only it's a, it's a, a valuable addition for them that way in that they can pencil in Maeda theoretically into the rotation for several years to come, and they'll be paying him below the market rate if you're the Twins. On top of that, it also means that if the Twins reach a point you know, next year or the year after where something goes horribly wrong and they're looking to rebuild, Maeda also has, I think, significant value on the market because his contract is so far below the market rate. But the other part of this is, and I say this, we love prospects at Baseball America. It's what we do. It's what we're about, all that. Bruzdar Gratterall is not uh, a pitching prospect who ranks 60th. There are guys who go from that to being stars. I, I went back and did the numbers. I, I worked the numbers of here are the pitchers who rank between 55 and 65 on our top 100 between 2010 and 2017. You have on that Marcus Stroman, Zach Wheeler, Eduardo Rodriguez, Drew Pomeranz, Sonny Gray. You have guys who have gone on to have significant success in one way or another. Now, again, guys get to 60th, the 60 range on that list for different reasons. One is, is you're young and you haven't proven it yet. Another is, is you're closer to the majors, but you've had some injury issues or relief concerns. That's kind of where Gratterall fits more in that. There's also guys like Rizel Iglesias, Zach Britton, who have been absolutely, you know, been very useful relievers. There also are the Braden Shipleys and the Aaron Blairs and the Taylor Guerreris and the A.J. Coles and the Zach Lees and the Brody Colvins, where it just has never worked out for them. It's not, Bruzdar Gratterall is not a sure thing. Bruzdar Gratterall has a high likelihood of being a useful reliever. He does have some injury issues that have been in the past. I think if you're the twins and you are all about right now uh, winning in 2020 and 2021, Kenta Maeda helps them do that. And to me, that makes all the sense in the world to do that. So that's that part. And now I'm going to kick it back to you, Kyle, for we have another trade as part of this because the Dodgers wanting to clear roster space and also clear some salary room. I think the angels kind of took a little bit of, you know, of, uh, took advantage of that to say, okay, here, send us, uh, send us your excess. And they worked a deal of their own. Yeah, I actually think of all four teams that were involved in this in some form or fashion, the Angels 
did the second best out of every team aside from the Dodgers. They brought in Jock Peterson, who gives them a, a power threat from the left side. They lost that when they lost Cole Calhoun in free agency. Peterson is going to settle in one of the corner outfield spots and be that left-handed masher they can pair with Shohei Otani. It really helps enhance their lineup even further. You go and get Ross Stripling, who's been a good pitcher, who can fill a number of roles for you. There's been some health concerns here or there, but on the whole, he's another solid pitcher they've added to their staff, which they needed to do this year. And really, they didn't give up a, a whole lot. Oh, by the way, they also got a really nice outfield prospect in Andy Pages for Luis Renjifo, who's a utility infielder. And we still have to see what the other piece of this deal is. Maybe it's another prospect of note. But on the whole, when you're getting an everyday corner outfielder, probable starter in your rotation, and if not starter, valuable swingman who can move into the rotation as needed, and a high upside outfield prospect for a utility guy and one of your other prospects, you're in really good shape. I think the Angels did very, very well for themselves, taking advantage of the Dodgers' need to move some money off the books. I thought this was a great, great trade for them. Again, we still have to see who this final piece is, but it's definitely not Joe Adele or Brandon Marsh or any of the top, top guys. And really outside of that group, uh, there's no one in there. You could say, man, if they traded him, that changes everything about this trade. The Angels did well for themselves. So, And there's one other team I do think that is at least moderately affected by this, which is we've talked about them. We did a Padres podcast not long ago. Obviously, it now means that the Padres are not acquiring Mookie Betts. It doesn't mean that they're not going to acquire somebody potentially at some point, but they're not acquiring Mookie Betts, which to me is a, you know, and it does seem like that the reality is, is the money was uh, the, the Dodgers' ability to take on payroll at a level that the Padres were not comfortable doing ended up being the, uh, the, the, the determining factor at the end of the day. But I do think that last night was obviously also a bad night for the Padres because as a team that needs to take a big step forward in 2020, Mookie Betts would have, <laughs> would have done a lot to help that. And, uh, you know, any, any aftermath thoughts for you for, the, for San Diego? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a rough couple of weeks for the Padres. Not only do you not acquire Starling Marte or Mookie Betts, teams in your division acquire them. I think going into this year, there was no question that Dodgers and Diamondbacks were the two favorites in the NL West. As much as the Padres have young talent, they were a 70-win team last year. They acquired some nice players, Tommy Pham, to make them better, Zach Davies as well, but not going to be enough to give them a 20-win bump to get in the playoff contention. Now the Dodgers have upgraded, the Diamondbacks have upgraded, acquiring players that could have helped the Padres. I don't think their outlook... I wouldn't say, obviously, not only has it not improved, I think it's it's gotten a little dimmer. I mean, the Diamondbacks and Dodgers really enhanced the gap between them and the Padres with their moves. Padres could have used these players. They didn't get them. And now we'll have to see how it all shakes out. Uh, you know, it's we, we do have to see how it all shakes out. But so we, we do have the trade. We've, you know, we've analyzed the trade. But also we are talking about a Dodgers farm system that is one of the, still one of the better farm systems in baseball. And we're seeing that for a team that has graduated top player after top player year after year in recent years. And as we said, is also not drafting at the top of the draft. This is not because they had the number one pick. This is because the Dodgers do an excellent job of player development, do an excellent job of scouting, do an excellent job really kind of in all aspects of the game. And yes, they do also have a lot of money to spend. But so Kyle, let's dive in. Now that we have covered the trade, we're going to dive into talking about the prospects. I want to start it with where, the, where do you think this farm system is now compared to where it's been the last couple of years? Is it just as good? Is it better? Is it 
worse? Is it deeper? Is it thinner? What about overall? So the Dodgers were the number one farm system uh, here at BA in 2016. That's when you had Corey Seager, Cody Bellinger, that group. Walker Bueller was part of that group as well. This farm system, it's not the number one farm system in baseball like that one was. I don't know if you have three franchise cornerstones in here, although you very well might. This is still one of the top five farm systems in baseball. If you go back and look, the Dodgers 2016 draft already looks like one of the best drafts of the decade, both in terms of talent they acquired for homegrown purposes and trade purposes. And this is just a really incredible player development group, as well as amateur scouting staff that works in sync to continue pumping out these great impact players in the major leagues year after year after year. And we saw it come to fruition in a lot of ways these last three years. We mentioned back-to-back World Series appearances in 17 and 18. It's the first time the Dodgers made the World Series since they won in 88. And last year, they won 106 games. That was the most wins in the history of the Dodgers franchise. Go back to Brooklyn. I mean, this was a truly epic season last year that they just kind of butchered with some awful, awful bullpen management as we talked about the day after it happened. For my money, this is the franchise singularly poised to dominate the 2020s, more than the Yankees, more than the Braves, more than anyone. When you look at the major league talent on the field right now, combined with what they have in the farm system, combined with the financial resources at their disposal, to me, the Dodgers have a chance to make the 2020s their decade. Gavin Lux, number one. The thing that, to me, is one of the most impressive things that this Dodgers, this Dodgers team has done, uh, and they've done this before. If you went back to the early 90s, there was the, the run of, of rookies of the year. Well, the Dodgers are doing this again, where they're producing, it feels like, a kind of cornerstone type player almost every year. Is Gavin Lux the next of those guys, or is Gavin Lux a, a nice piece? you know, who's going to be a, just a, a nice part of the, of the lineup going forward. He's going to be a very, very, very good player. He's probably not going to be Cody Bellinger, an MVP award winner. Corey Seager versus him. There was a little more on Seager at the time. Those two guys won Rookie of the Year and have been in the MVP race. Bellinger winning it. Seager was in it until he got hurt. Lux is going to be a first division, bona fide, likely all-star in the middle of the diamond. That's tremendously valuable. He's got the personality to be a fan favorite, and he's going to be another cornerstone the Dodgers can work with. I mean, you've talked about all these guys, 16 Corey Seager, 17 Cody Bellinger, 18 Walker Bueller. Last year, it was more of a trio of Will Smith, Alex Verdugo, Matt Beatty. And this year, Lux is primed to carry it on. This is a guy with an all-star ceiling, and maybe he does make a jump and start becoming that guy who gets MVP votes. We talked about it after naming him minor league player of the year. The rate at which this guy improves every single year has been pretty remarkable. I don't think you can ever put anything past him. But as it stands right now, he's not quite the Seager-Bellinger level, but he's above the Verdugo-Smith-Beatty level. A true all-star middle-of-the-diamond guy that you can absolutely stick in the number two spot in your lineup and win with for the next five, six, seven years. And he may not even be, theoretically, the the biggest impact uh, prospect in in 2020 from this list because as you mentioned already Dustin May's number two and Dustin May could be could make a significant impact in for this Dodgers team uh, this year in my opinion I, I would imagine that you would probably agree with that absolutely we saw May come up last year you know he was only 21 when he came up last year they put him in the bullpen they gave him some starts 
I mean, this control is insane. Uh, we've talked about 70 grade control on the scouting scale came up right away as a young rookie in the major leagues and walked 1.3 per nine while, oh, by the way, blowing 100 mile an hour sinkers out of the bullpen in the playoffs. It was really, really impressive to watch his debut as he came up. He adjusted very quickly. You kind of bet on this guy going out and winning a rotation spot, whether that's opening day or for the bulk of the season. Throws a lot of strikes, has premium stuff, still developing a little bit of a soft offering, but there's no reason when you map the Dodgers' rotation out long-term, you can't slot him in as their number two behind Walker Bueller. Again, he's probably not Bueller level, but he's a really, really good pitcher that should be a cornerstone of the Dodgers heading into the 2020s. And one thing I'll also add with that was how the Dodgers use their pitching. Admittedly, the, the IL rules have changed a little bit for 2020, but this is a team that generally I would say has had six starters every year. Um, and I don't mean like they've had a six starters stepped in. They kind of plan out the season with the idea that, that they're going to have six guys who throw significant, who get 15 plus starts. They're going to be uh, a little creative at times to give guys rest as they need it, you know, to move guys to the pen and back and vice versa. And all, you know, they, it wouldn't surprise me at all if May, even if he wasn't in the opening day rotation, that there were, the Dodgers' plan at that point was just to get him 15, 20 starts, but just use it in a way where they want to make sure that their staff is ready to go and is ready to, you know, is in fine form come October. And I think one of the ways they do that is, is that they just don't have anyone make 30 starts almost ever for them. Well, they did have last year, and we saw this. They did have four pitchers throw at least 150 innings. Ryu made 29, Bueller 30, Kershaw 28. Maeda was 26 starts and also 11 relief appearances. So there's no question they mix and match, but it's not quite so crazy where everyone's only throwing 130. And I think that will work in Dustin May's favor. One thing that stood out about him with so many pitch count and innings restrictions on young pitchers in the minors He's been incredibly durable every year going over 130 innings, no problem. He's got the build that if the Dodgers do say, you know what, we do want to make him a 180-inning starter, as they have with some of their key guys in past years at the front of their rotation, he can do that. And that, to me, is what separates him and Lux. The Dodgers have a really, really good system full of guys who have a chance to be above-average everyday players. Lux and May are the two cornerstones, and potentially we could look back five years from now. It would not be a shock if these top two have made the biggest impact of any top two in the minors. Yeah, you're saying as a duo, like, okay, you would maybe take that duo over any other duo is, is kind of, is that my interpretation? Of yeah, that? yeah. You know, we're not saying, because again, if you do look at it, that's two top 20 prospects, and there are very few, very few teams who can say that. Marlins, I mean, sorry, Mariners are obviously one with uh, Julio Rodriguez, Jared Kelenic, kind of the top 20 two top 25 prospects, but off the top of my head, I am not, you know, I'm not sitting here pulling it up, but there are not many others that come to mind right now. And Padres uh, with Gore and Patino, but especially having the one position player, one pitcher, you mentioned the Mariners, two position players, Padres, two pitchers. This gives them a cornerstone on both sides of the ball. And uh, that's important to have. Okay. So then I, the, the, the other guy that I really want to dive into with you, and we may have some differing opinions as we sometimes do in a uh, respectful manner is, is that, so Cabert Ruiz, number three on this list. I'm a little more concerned, I think, about Cabert than you are. I, again, we both have concerns, but, but what to you stands out about Cabert Ruiz and uh, 
what what are some things for you know that that make him uh, the number three prospect in a very good system? Sure. So let's just be blunt about it. This was not a very good season for him in a lot of ways. He was sent back to Double A, a level he'd already mastered. Struggled with motivation and did not perform very well. Got up to Triple A. Seemed re-energized, but it was only nine games before he suffered a season-ending injury. Took a foul ball off his bare hand behind the plate. Even though it was not a great season, you kind of take a step back and say, this is still a catcher who got to AAA essentially on his 21st birthday, had mastered AA already, had mastered the lower levels. And to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to bang a guy who got to AAA at 21 because he strode a little bit and run up the new hot 18-year-old who did really well in low A, a level he already has long surpassed. So I think at the end of the day, you're still looking at a switch hitting 21-year-old catcher in AAA with tremendous bat-to-ball skills, still walked more than he struck out, facing the best pitching the minor leagues have to offer in AA and AAA. He really probably does need to junk his right-handed swing. It's just not an effective swing, and it takes a lot away from him. There's power in there. It's probably more 10 to 15 home run power, but When you have a a premier hitter like this at his age, at his position, who's moved as quick as he has, it's hard for me to bang him too much. Again, is he still Victor Martinez 2.0? There's definitely some doubts about that. But in the grand scheme of prospects, this is still a very good, very accomplished one who works both profile-wise, tools grades-wise. I still think you're looking at a very, very good major league future here. Okay, my, my concerns... I would characterize his 2018 season not as he showed he conquered double-A, but he showed that he didn't drown in double-A. It was basically, he was admittedly one of the youngest players in that league. It was essentially, if you normalize, it was essentially a league average season, which is good. I mean, he's a catcher. I'm not denigrating that. He basically, as you kind of said, it's excellent bat-to-ball skills to me, but it's excellent bat-to-ball skills with very little impact. He generally, you know, last year, Admittedly, this is his worst example. I'm citing his worst example, but last year in AA, uh, 076 isolated power is, is really is, is concerning. I mean, that's something where, yes, you are putting bat on ball, but you're putting bat on ball and doing so in a very low-impact manner. It did get a little better in his nine games at AAA. Insert AAA ball there. It was actually below league average as far as his production at AAA as well even though the numbers themselves look really good, but you normalized it was a, it was a, uh, I believe in a, a way to run created plus of a 99. So basically right around league average. He had the really good end of season in 2017. Uh, he had a really good season in 2017 at low A as well. I just, my concern with him is not that he's not going to be a big leaguer. I think there's zero question about that. Not that he's not going to put bat on ball because he's shown he does not strike out. He's got an excellent ability to do that. And that is a trait that absolutely gives you a chance to develop other skills as well. I do have some concerns over how much he's going to impact the baseball. And, and yeah, okay, there is the argument that can be made that right now with the baseball as it is, if it stays this way, that's not that much of a concern. What we don't know is, is you know, the, the $1,000 question we all have is, is the baseball, is the environment going to stay the same as it is? And the other thing with him, which is not this, this is just a circumstance, is, is that he is in an organization that is stacked and overloaded with catchers. I will be interested to see what that means for him because – 
Will Smith has, has just arrived at the big league level, uh, you know, and now he did tail off in September, but had an, an excellent debut. You, you have him, you have behind him, it's a, a system that Diego Cartaya, it, it has some catchers behind him as well. Obviously, Connor Wong, you know, is another guy to keep an eye on. He's going to have to perform because if not, there's not going to be a position for him in an organization that has a lot of catchers. Is, is that fair? Oh, absolutely. There's no question this upcoming season is an important one for him to show, A, that he's fully healthy and also that he can start impacting the baseball a little more. I think in general, the faith comes from, we see it all the time, power develops last. If you have bat-to-ball skill, you take good at bats, especially at a young age at upper levels, the power will eventually come. So that's really where the faith comes from. There's still some defensive things to work on. That's true of every young catcher in the minors. I do think that if you're the Dodgers, given the organizational depth you talk about, I have zero qualms dangling Capert Ruiz in a trade. Now, Will Smith, how much of Will Smith is the guy who lit the baseball world on fire to start? Or is he the guy that tailed off really pretty drastically uh, the final month plus of the season? The answer is he's probably somewhere in between. Uh, There's still a lot of faith that at the end of the day, Ruiz probably will be a better hitter than Smith. Though Smith will hit for more power and his defense is very clearly better, always has been. I do think if you're the Dodgers and you need something, there should be zero hesitation to deal Cabert Ruiz. And I'll be curious to see if they do that, when they do that, if it's this offseason and a Mookie Betts trade, if they hold on to him midseason comes around and they try and swing him for an impact reliever, which we've seen they need. They have options with him, which is a good place to be. But I think there's still a general faith he'll be a good player. The power will come. But it is on him to make the improvements this year. Also, in terms of his approach, just you know, sometimes guys with this great bat-to-ball scope means they swing at pitches and make contact on some they really shouldn't. They'd be better off taking. So we'll have to see if he can just make those approach adjustments and start getting pitches he can drive and swing at those rather than maybe making contact on some balls he can't do a lot of damage on. Uh, the other thing I'd say with that is, is from that standpoint, this year is going to be very important because if he comes out and is very productive in 2020, then, you know, again, Cabert Ruiz has been a, a high-profile prospect for, for quite a while now, you know, several years. If he comes out and performs more like what he did in 2019, and at, at that point, some of the prospect value shine, you know, as far as trade, starts to diminish. Uh, to some extent. And so this will be a very valuable year for him, uh, for him and the Dodgers, very important year, I should say, for him and the Dodgers, I think, because if we're talking at the midseason about Cabert Ruiz and we're having to kind of explain what has gone wrong as far as him producing in AAA uh, with this baseball, then in the PCL, then, uh, then there will be something more worrisome. But it will be fascinating. I think he is definitely a player – absolutely to watch in uh in 2020 see kind of how things go and how things progress for him i I did want to kind of ask you to go a little bit also kind of off the board and not really off the board but okay so we covered in in pretty well in depth the top three who's the guy who's not in the top 10 that you're very excited to see what he does in that sure so Miguel Vargas is a really, really interesting young player. He was a very, very highly touted hitter in Cuba. His dad is kind of a Cuban baseball legend, won a couple Olympic gold medals for the Cuban national team. Vargas and his dad came to the U.S. a few years ago, uh, didn't sign for almost two years, 
Dodgers signed him and it took him a little bit to kind of get his body back in shape and just kind of get back to the grind of playing baseball in an organized setting every day. Well, last year, as the same age as the kids from the 2018 draft, got up to high A with a 308, 380, 440 slash line. If a first-round pick had done that, he'd probably be getting a lot of love as, hey, this guy should be a top 100 prospect. And I think there's an argument that he has a chance to really zoom up this year. Again, hitting 308 with 38 doubles, seven homers, getting up to high in his draft year. Oh, by the way, 13 for 17 on stolen bases. This is someone I left out of the top 10 that I think has a chance to make me look foolish. So young, such a fuel to hit, drives the ball the other way. Still learning to turn on some balls and have some power to the pull side. Whether he stays at third base, that's where a lot of scouts are a little uncertain on him. He's just a bigger, stronger kid, and it might be a first base only bat. But with what he's done so far as a teenager, there might be enough thump in there to project, yeah, if he has to move to first base, he might hit enough. And at the end of the day, if you hit enough, you're going to play in the majors. And so far, he's hit and hit and hit some more. Yeah, that's going to be it. Again, and we could keep going on on guys. I would say that the thing that does stand out to me when you said this was our number one farm system just a few years ago, and it's lived up to that so far, uh, what, that, what that group has produced. I do feel like that this is still a very, it's still a deep system. And I also think and feel confident in saying there's someone that we are not talking about right now who's going to make a breakthrough in in 2020 because that's, you also have to, I mean, this is one of the better to me or one of the best, I guess would be a better way to put it, player development systems out there as far as ability to help players improve, get better. And and really, in some cases, it, it allows them to develop value, uh, if you want to use that term, from kind of lower round picks, from low-cost international signings, players who, who simply kind of emerge, you know, and, and either become big leaguers for them or also become trade value for them. You look back a couple of years ago, uh, there's, <laughs> there's no one from that Manny Machado trade that the Dodgers traded away, that they're regretting, you know, how did we let that happen a couple of years later? Even the Josh Reddick, Rich Hill trade from 2016 at the time traded Frankie Montas, Jarrell Cotton, and Grant Holmes. Obviously, Frankie Montas has developed into a very, very good starter for the A's, although last year he got popped for PEDs. Cotton and Holmes at the time, oh, hey, these might be top 100 type prospects. Dodgers traded him without blinking twice. And look what Rich Hill gave them over the last couple of years. They would absolutely take that again and again and again. You go back and look at some of the other trades they made. Jose De Leon was considered a big time prospect at one point. They moved him and again, weren't hurt by it. I think the Dodgers, in addition to having this incredible player development apparatus, do as good a job of any team accurately assessing the talent of their own guys and knowing who to move in trades, who not to move in trades. And that's hugely valuable. So many mistakes we see just come from teams misevaluating their own players. The Dodgers have very, very, very few misevaluations. Again, there doesn't mean there won't be guys who might later on down the road be like, oh man, it'd be nice to have him. Willie Calhoun is hitting fine for Texas. You Darvish gave the Dodgers some really good starts down the stretch, just fell apart in the World Series. Maybe O'Neill Cruz blossoms in Pittsburgh, but again, they got what they needed in terms of a good lefty reliever and Tony Watson for those immediate years. The Dodgers 
win most of the trades they swing. They develop a lot of the players better than any other team in the majors. This is a really good team with all the pieces in place. Now it's just about, I go back for this team to make it all turn into a World Series championship. It's just going to come down to smarter decisions in crunch time in the postseason. The 2017 World Series, pulling Rich Hill after four innings in game two was a colossal blunder that never should have happened. We talked about it the day it happened. Game five of the NLDS last year, again, was just an epic mismanagement. And what you have to hope for is that Dave Roberts learns from those mistakes and the Dodgers organization learns from those mistakes. That, to me, is the only thing that will prevent this team from potentially winning a World Series this decade. Uh, again, it's a, it's a team that has been at the top or right at the top for, for several years now. It does not look like they're going anywhere, <laughs> and especially when you throw in on, on top of everything else, that this is an organization that has resources and is also willing to use their resources, which is something that, uh, that does stand out. It's, it is interesting. The, one, the thing we'll end this with is, is it is interesting. You talk about that you think this team is positioned to be the team of the 2020s. And the one thing I will point out with that, I am not saying that they cannot be, but the one thing that I will point out is not that they do not have some really impressive young talent. You mentioned we mentioned many of their names already. That said, they also are going to see a very significant amount of older talent. Clayton Kershaw is one that most comes to mind that are kind of heading into their, the down phases, the down stages of their careers. And, and it's not just him, but you mentioned Justin Turner. You know, there's, there are a number of players like this. And so when you say that you think that they'll be the team, the team of the 2020s, what is it about that uh, about them that that really stands out for you for that? Just that they have the pieces in place in terms of the frontline young talent to potentially replace some of these guys. Not that you ever fully replace prime Clayton Kershaw or even to a degree prime Kenley Jansen, but they have players that you can project to become impact players as these guys kind of age out. You mentioned Kershaw, Turner, I mentioned Jansen. I will be interested to see, to me, the biggest kicker is going to be how these young arms successfully transition into becoming full-time workhorse starters. Julio Urias is still around. He's only 23. He's never shown any durability due to injury. Whether he can make the jump and become that durable, effective 150, I think 180 at this point is, is wishing too much for him, but even just 150 quality innings, if Dustin May can make that jump, if Tony Gonsolin can make that jump. The players are in place, and that's why you have faith, but they still have to do it, and nothing's ever guaranteed. If all of a sudden those three guys struggle to make the jump to the rotation, and you're without Rich Hill, you're without Hunjin Ryu, Clayton Kershaw falls off a cliff, and those guys don't step up, then the Dodgers are going to have a very significant starting pitching problem. I think you just bet on the Dodgers player development system. You bet on the talent of these guys for it working out but there's absolutely a scenario it doesn't work out and to me that's the scenario if the starting pitchers don't make the jump it's going to be interesting to watch 2020 you know if the Dodgers aren't involved in some way uh come October we'll all be shocked but it's it again it's a fun system still even though they continue to graduate impact players it should be also a fun division for a change maybe you know if the uh, Diamondbacks or Padres can basically continue to make moves to, uh, to try to at least give the, give the Dodgers some competition. The Dodgers have been the class of this division as far as the regular season for basically a decade now. Uh, but thank you for all the insights, Kyle. We do want to remind you, 
you enjoyed this, you would absolutely enjoy Baseball America Prospect Handbook, Wander Franco on the cover, 30 reports, 30 scouting reports on the top 30. So reports on the top 30 players on all 30 teams. Uh, a lot more in addition to that, you know, tools grades for everyone in the top 10s, uh, position rankings, a lot there, a lot to enjoy, BA grades. And it is available now. If you order from baseballamerica.com, you can order yours and we will ship it out to you now. You're not going to have to wait. If you go elsewhere, you have to wait a little while longer. We get them first. And so they are shipping. We are posting every day. I'm seeing photos of people who have received their prospect handbook. So if you want your prospect handbook and you haven't got it yet, go to baseballamerica.com, order it, and we will send it out going to you. You will have it before spring training. So for Kyle Glazer, I'm JJ Cooper. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.